Everybody and welcome. It's 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Wednesday, September 28th, 2022. And thank you for joining us for the 137th episode of the Rock and Roll Shrink Radio Show here on Blog Talk Radio. Special thanks to our host, NDB Media. I'm Casey Shapiro, and with me tonight is Dr. Stephen Mathis, aka the Rock and Roll Shrink. All right, an impromptu announcement. Today is National Sons Day and Sons and Sons of Bees and all kinds of fun like that. <laughs> we'll be taking calls from our listeners all evening during the show at 914-338-0314. You can also follow along in our live chat room on blogtalkradio.com as the show is happening. Before we begin, a couple quick disclaimers. This show does not constitute a doctor-client relationship, nor legal or medical representation of any kind. Also, the views expressed on this show are those of Dr. Mathis and Ms. Shapiro, and are not an official stance on behalf of the psychological community or its peer vetting or regulatory bodies. And now a topic-relevant bit of music played by Dr. Mathis himself. Take it away, Doc. If you don't mind, please let us know the name of the song and the artist and its relevance to tonight's topic. 
Well, that was uh, an excerpt from probably one of my favorite uh, Who pieces. Uh, It's the intro to Quadrophenia, and it's called The Real Me. And it's uh, the refrain on that is, can you see the real me? And since we're talking about uh, other people's views of ourselves and getting uh, commentaries on that, I thought that would be kind of an interesting uh, song to start out with. Gotcha. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've heard Quadrophenia, so that's going in the way back machine. Yes, ma'am. One of my all-time favorites. Nice. Okay, so as Dr. Mathis alludes, uh, tonight's episode is entitled Don't Stop Believing, The Psychology of Feedback, with a nod to Journey, and we'll discuss that in a moment. Before we begin our topic discussion, let's first go to the Rock and Roll Shirk Recalls, a moment of rock music trivia stories as recounted by Dr. Mathis, if you would, sir. Okay, so I thought tonight I would talk a bit about uh, Carlos Santana and his guitars. Uh, everybody, of course, <clears throat> within the, within the uh, sound of my voice, who's a music person, particularly a rock music person of any almost any genre, will know who Carlos Santana is. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, as most of you know, he came to uh, the public awareness, particularly as a result of the original uh, Woodstock Festival in 69, where his band played uh, for that. Uh, He has gone through several guitars in his uh, history, although probably since the late 80s, 88, 89, he's been playing uh, Paul Reed Smith PRS guitars. Prior to that, he was pretty much a Gibson guy and started out playing an SG Special. In fact, that's what he played at Woodstock. Uh, and I believe it had P90s in it, which are the, the uh, soap bars, which are my favorite pickups. I love those things. They're those and the mini humbuckers. I just love the way they sound. Uh, and played that all the way through, uh, and eventually uh, traded that out for a Lips, Paul Gibson Les Paul, uh, and, an SG, and continued to play his SG Special. Although I think he went from a red special to a black special, but (laughs) they're they're all uh, pretty similar, just the colors are different. And then had a uh, Les Paul guitar. And then in the mid-70s, he started endorsing uh, an L6S Custom, which is also a Gibson guitar, which is kind of a a cross model for them. It's not a very popular guitar, but he really liked it and played it for quite a while. Uh, and eventually uh, also included a Yamaha uh, SG-175 and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and also played a, an open coil Gibson SG Custom. In the early 80s, uh, he got approached by Paul Reed Smith, who was breaking out on his own, to play Paul Reed Smith guitars. And after PRS kind of harassed him for a while and sent him free guitars and said, hey, play this, play this, play this. What do you think of this? Uh, He finally agreed to play PRS guitars and starting out in 88 had the first Santana signature model, which was uh, basically kind of a uh, kind of a yellow ochre guitar. It's a really pretty guitar with a lot of flame on and it's called the Santana one. And they came out in the late 80s. And then that has also morphed into the Santana II, a.k.a. the quote-unquote supernatural guitar, which came out in the late 90s, I think 1999. 
and then the Santana III, which came out in the early 2000s. And then from that, he's had limited editions uh, that have come out through, during the 2000s, the multidimensional, uh, and then the 25th anniversary, which would have been uh, 2009, I think, and then also came out uh, with another uh, with a retro model in 2016 or 17, I don't remember which, and then redid, uh, which kind of redid his original yellow guitar, uh, ergo the term retro, uh, and, and that was uh, 2017, I think it was 2017, and he has continued to uh, use PRS guitars predominantly as his electric guitar, and has been a big devotee of uh, Paul Reed Smith guitars, and you know, PRS makes really good guitars, and uh, I have several of them, and in fact, I have a signature Santana uh, private stock, which are made literally one-offs kind of thing by the luthier himself and a very small team of people. Uh, as far as acoustics, uh, he typically uses an Alvarez uh, classical with uh, nylon strings and also uh, uses a semi-hollow uh, Model T jazz guitar um, made by Natano, uh, it's kind of a jazz electric nylon. It's kind of a weird puppy. Uh, but as I said, mainly when he plays, you see him with Paul Reed Smith guitars. He's also not uh, a big effects guy. He doesn't use a shoot ton of effects pedals like I do and like some people do. But, you know, there's there's a lot of folks who don't use a lot of effects pedals. Clapton is one. Um, Ted Nugent doesn't use very many effects pedals, if any. Uh, he's, he's kind of a straight-ahead kind of guy. But uh, when Santana does, he typically uses uh, a wah pedal, most often either a Dunlap or a Mutron, and a delay pedal that I think is a T-Rex replica, and uh, then uses a an amp switcher to switch different amps and cabs to get different tones out of the guitars. Uh, he has also in the past used a big muff, which is a distortion unit uh, made by Electro Harmonex, a very well-known pedal maker, and has used an Ibanez Tube Screamer, which is kind of an overdrive slash distortion uh, pedal before, which are also very well-known guitars. Now, there is a shoe ton of versions of Tube Screamers, so every Tube Screamer isn't the same, even though... They all have the name Tube Screamer. They all have different, slightly different capacitors and mods on them. And, you know, you've seen everybody from uh, Eric Johnson to uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan to, you know, everybody on the planet using Tube Screamers. They're very, very popular. They have a really nice tone to them. Uh, he's also occasionally uh, used a talk box that was made famous by John K. of Steppenwolf uh, and, of course, Peter Frampton and Joe Walsh. Uh, but he doesn't use it really often. Every now and then you'll see him using that sort of thing. So he's, he's a pretty straight-ahead kind of guy. And, you know, if you're as talented as uh, Santana's on guitar, you can afford to be a straight-ahead guy without uh, a lot of effects. And, I, you know, again, I could say the same thing about uh, Jeff Beck or Eric Clapton or uh, Ted Nugent, all of whom are very light on the effects uh, end of the spectrum, so to speak. So that's kind of my uh, nod to Carlos, who's been around for a really long time and still a fabulous player and still touring and, uh, you know, just really, uh, really great guitarist, regardless of uh, what genre you play. I mean, he can do a lot of different stuff. He's not a one-trick pony but for anybody means, even though he's a one-trick guitar guy <laughs> in terms of the manufacturer for the most part. He is certainly not a one-trick pony. 
So I thought I'd do a nod to uh, Carlos and his guitars. Excellent. Thank you very much. Always good for a story. Okay. Uh, Again, we will take calls from our listeners and questions in the online chat room throughout the rest of the evening until around midnight. Sorry about that. Feel free to give us a call. And again, the number is 914-338-0314. All right. Tonight's topic, don't stop believing the psychology of feedback. There are a few greater gifts, this is a quote, a person can give someone than showing them that you are paying attention to what they're doing and helping them to do it more successfully, end quote. In mid-August, a cybersecurity Twitter account that I follow posted an article from Harvard Business Review on feedback entitled, Why People Crave Feedback and Why We're Afraid to Give It. And this was published by Harvard Business School. This particular article discusses constructive feedback in the workplace specifically. But tonight, I'd like to expand that notion to include all kinds of feedback and in any walks of life. Also, why is it that, at least in Western culture, most of us crave feedback from others, and yet we are so reluctant to offer any ourselves? So tonight, we will discuss First, what is feedback and what is its purpose? Then, why we want feedback but bulk at giving it in return? Then, how is feedback misused, misunderstood, or otherwise goes wrong? And then, conclusions, closing remarks, and final suggestions. And before we get started, I'm going to check in with you real quick and see if there's anything that you would like to add, Dr. Mathis. I'm good for now, thanks. Okay, let's dive on in. What is feedback and what is its purpose? And I don't mean in in the guitar sense, although there is a time and place for that, but that's a different show. Okay, one of the key points about giving and receiving feedback is that many of us do not actually understand what constitutes feedback. It is often used interchangeably with compliments, And so when we receive constructive criticism in any way, we often feel hurt or attacked, or we do not want to receive any feedback that is not purely compliments. So I'm going to define three terms for you that it's important to keep straight. The definition of compliment, an act or expression of praise, approval, respect, or admiration, and it is not used to facilitate improvement of anything. The definition of constructive criticism. This is interchangeable with positive feedback. Constructive criticism is a method of critique that offers actionable, effective feedback so employees can implement improvement strategies. Negative feedback does not equate to this. It should always include suggestions for improvement. Also, this is connotation rather than the official definition, but you can give someone constructive criticism on a personal basis, but it's a little analytical for a lot of people. So it is possible, but, you know, frankly, it might just get a little weird. (laughs) It's a little on the Sheldon side, but, you know, it is legitimate if you do that. 
And then last, definition of feedback. It is usually helpful information or criticism that is given to someone about their performance, a product, a task, a behavior, a situation, or similar things. You can give or receive feedback in one's personal life, of course, as a consumer or a business, or as employer, employee, or in the workplace. Technically, feedback can be negative and only contain criticisms. It's just far less effective in getting a solution. Connotatively, feedback is usually expected to be focused on supporting improvements. Giving and or receiving feedback is predicated, whether personally or professionally, on valuing and prioritizing self-improvement and the ability to not assume that feedback is an insult. It also assumes that either personally or professionally, the recipient has goals, accomplishments, or benchmarks in mind, no matter how small or vague. And this also applies personally or professionally, the feedback, you know, your goals could be I want to be healthier and look really sharp or I want to learn a new thing like a language or something or a skill, you know, things like that. Um, giving or receiving feedback also assumes that the recipient is open to feedback. Some people are just not ready to hear criticism. Some givers of criticism also could be off base in their judgment. That's entirely possible. We will discuss these aspects and more in a few minutes. The purpose of this section is just to establish uh, concrete definitions so that we're all using these words in the same way together. And then I'm going to stop here and check in with you, Dr. Mathis, to see if there's anything you want to add. Nope, I'm still good. Thanks. Okay. Let's keep going. Next, we want to talk about why we want feedback but we balk at giving it in return. So it's a very one-sided sort of thing. We all want to get it, but we don't like to be the one to give it. And this is a little socially and psychologically sticky. So let's go ahead and dive in. So first off, there's a study I want to talk about. Uh, Francesca Gino, the Tandem Family Professor, T-A-N-D-O-N, it's a surname, uh, of business administration at Harvard Business School, conducted five experiments with HBS doctoral students Nicole Abi Esper and Jennifer Abel, and Juliana Schroeder, an associate professor at the University of California, Berkeley, Haas School of Business. The results are included in a recent paper that is published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology in August 2022. Amongst the various conclusions they found in this study are workplace surveys consistently show that employees crave better information about how they could improve their performance, but most say they don't get it. Participants rated their desire to receive feedback significantly higher than their comfort level giving feedback. In another experiment, the team ratcheted up the stakes by inviting two people who knew each other well, such as romantic partners or close friends, into the laboratory and then randomly assigning one of them to provide constructive feedback to the other about a real-life issue. 
The feedback givers routinely expressed nervousness and predicted the conversation would go poorly. Yet, afterwards, they typically said the conversation wasn't as bad as they thought it would be. Why we crave feedback. From a 2013 Forbes article on leadership strategy. As you probably know, once we have food and shelter, but before we can seek self-actualization, and yes, they're talking about Maslow's hierarchy here, the smart state, we must feel safety, belonging, and mattering. Without these three essential keys, a person cannot get into their smart state. They cannot perform, innovate, feel emotionally engaged, agree, or move forward. Safety, belonging, and mattering are essential to your brain and your ability to perform at work, at home, and at life overall. The greater the feeling of safety, both emotional and physical, so that we can take risks, the greater the feeling of connection with others, or the feeling that we're in this together and we belong together, the greater the feeling that we personally matter and make a difference and are contributing to the greater good then the greater the success of the company, the relationship, the family, the team, and the individual. In our social media-heavy society, many people put more weight on the approval of other people they know in person and feel it is likely to be more accurate and personally relevant. And this has to do with receiving feedback. They want to sit down with someone and get that feedback from that person uh, face-to-face. They don't want to just read on a forum or on a form letter that they get from HR about how they're doing. In our instant feedback culture, supported by the ubiquitousness of the Internet, we want to know if the pursuits on which we spend our time are paying off as we hoped or at least have a constructive purpose, that we're not wasting our time or being lied to in some way. Most people want approval, and our culture equates feedback with approval, even if, as we discussed earlier, that is a slight misunderstanding of the term. What we crave are often compliments, but it's considered inappropriate to seek those out on purpose. As humans, we crave belonging, and we also crave being seen as skilled or in authority because it gives us control, security, or power, and those things usually happen through the expressed approval of others. Now, why we don't like to give feedback. Most people don't know or don't prioritize just how much other people do crave feedback, so they don't think the lack of it matters. Feedback can be taken by some as negative or an attack, and many people don't like to be seen as attacking someone, especially a friend or a coworker. Not everyone has the right skill to be able to see a situation in need of improvement, then to determine, never mind tactfully, understandably and succinctly convey steps for improvement. Discerning and communicating useful feedback is but one of many skills for adulthood that most school systems and even parents do not teach, and many teens and young adults are never given a chance to master it. Especially in personal situations, we may suspect or know in advance that the person, the recipient of the feedback, is not open to feedback, and we anticipate friction or hurt feelings. And 
here I'm going to pause and check in with you, Dr. Mathis, and see if you want to add anything. Yeah, I also think that sometimes people think that if they give feedback, uh, particularly if it's uh, critical feedback, even if it's intended to be helpful, that it will be misunderstood and or it won't make a difference. And it's like, why should I even waste my time, so to speak? Absolutely. I, I definitely think that enters into it. And I think it colors the feedback that people choose to give. Like if they uh, are worried about that kind of reaction, they may filter their feedback accordingly, uh, more yeah. in anticipation of the reaction rather than the need of improvement. It's going to be catered to how much am I getting yelled at if I say this? <laughs> right. Yeah. Or or misunderstood or seen as being mean or spiteful or whatever. Right. Um, Exactly. But I really think that a lot of that has to do with, you know, what you mentioned earlier, which is <clears throat> we don't teach people how to do that in our society. Uh, and, you know, there's a skill set to that, and it sort of varies depending on the person that you're giving the feedback to and how they perceive information and process it. So, it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's a multi-layered process that we don't really give a lot of uh, training or uh, coaching in, so to speak. So it's kind of, I think some people feel very awkward in doing it. Yes. And as, as you were talking, something has just occurred to me and I do not want to sidetrack with this because frankly, this discussion could be another episode on its own. But I think this entire discussion is understandably so very neurotypical. If you start adding in people who have various pathologies that enter into the perception of these things or their ability to parse it, that's a whole other can of worms to deal with. Yep. And sometimes you may yep. not even know that's what you're dealing with until you say something and then your reaction is completely not what you thought it was going to be and it blows up. So, yep. yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, d definitely, you know, that, that can be another huge factor all by itself. Alrighty, so let's go ahead and go to the next section. And uh, right along that same line, how feedback is misused, misunderstood, or otherwise goes wrong. And again, um, tonight we are doing this from a very neurotypical point of view, but it is a whole other discussion that is necessary and valid, but we're not going to do tonight on how to do this when you're dealing with pathologies that enter into people's ability to parse these conversations. Uh, some people just can't, but we're, we'll do that later. All right, so as mentioned earlier, a lot of the emotional baggage around feedback, both receiving and giving, is centered around our cultural misunderstanding about what is feedback as well as a general lack of emotional maturity to give or receive feedback as an authentic attempt to offer guidance for the purpose of improvement and to not see that as a personal attack. And this happens to people that are neurotypical in this way. We're just not taught how to do this. This is a nuance. This is not a primitive behavior. It's a learned behavior, and we don't give people a chance to learn it. So this is from... The Feedback Fallacy, which is an article from 2019 at Harvard Business Review. And there's a couple of quotes that I grabbed from there. The occasions where the actions or knowledge necessary to minimally perform a job can be objectively defined in advance are rare and becoming rarer. 
What we mean by feedback is very different. Feedback is about telling people what we think of their performance and how they should do it better. Whether they're giving an effective presentation, leading a team, or creating a strategy. And, and again, a lot of this conversation centers around work situations, but it certainly ports over to personal ones. And on that, the research is clear. Telling people what we think of their performance doesn't help them thrive and excel. And telling people how we think they should improve actually hinders learning. Underpinning the current conviction that feedback is an unalloyed good are three theories that we in the business world commonly accept as truths. The first is that other people are more aware than you are of your weaknesses and that the best way to help you, therefore, is for them to show you what you cannot see for yourself. We call this our theory of the source of truth. You do not realize that your suit is shabby, that your presentation is boring, or that your voice is grating. So it's up to your colleagues to tell you as plainly as possible, quote, where you stand. If they didn't, you would never know. And this would be bad. <laughs> the second belief is that the process of learning is like filling up an empty vessel. You lack certain abilities you need to acquire, so your colleagues should teach them to you. We call this our theory of learning. If you're in sales, how can you possibly close deals if you don't learn the competency of marrying and matching the prospect? If you're a teacher, how can you improve if you don't learn and practice the steps and the latest team teaching technique or flipped classroom format? The thought is that you can't and that you need feedback to develop the skills you're missing. I find it interesting that this pattern has been occurring for decades every time they have a new system for teaching. And, and they all think that they operate the same way, but then what happened to the ones we were doing 20 years ago? But I digress. The third belief is that great performance is universal, analyzable, and describable, and that once defined, it can be transferred from one person to another regardless of who each individual is. Hence, you can, with feedback about what excellence looks like, understand where you fall short of this ideal and then strive to remedy your shortcomings. We call this our theory of excellence. If you're a manager, your boss might show you the company's supervisor behaviors model, holds you up against it, and tell you what you need to do to more closely hew to it. If you aspire to lead, your firm might use a 360-degree feedback tool to measure you against its predefined leadership competencies and then suggest various courses or experiences that will enable you to acquire the competencies that your results indicate you lack. What these three theories have in common is self-centeredness. They take our own expertise and what we are sure is our colleagues' inexpertise as givens. They assume that my way is necessarily your way. But as it turns out, in extrapolating from what creates our own performance to what might create performance in others, we overreach. Feedback, personal or professional, can work for some people. We're not saying the entire process is without merit, but for it to do any good, just be aware of its boundaries and occasionally its failings. And with that, I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis, for further commentary. What I would say is if you're going to give feedback, regardless of the type, know your audience, know how the person, as much as you can, 
know how the person processes data information and ask yourself, is there some good that's going to come from this feedback, positive or negative? And if it's not, you're probably better to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> just, uh, it's just not going to be worth it if the person is not going to hear you correctly or if you don't know how to communicate it correctly to the person uh, or if the person just doesn't want to hear it. And uh, <clears throat> you have to, excuse me, you have to kind of know the person well to be able to make those kind of determinations sometimes. And, you know, if you're in a business setting, you don't always get that opportunity. Uh, if you're in a personal setting with somebody you know, it's much more likely you're going to be able to give feedback that's going to be uh, beneficial. You also have to ask yourself, does the person really give a flip about improving or not? Because there's a lot of folks that we know that just don't care. They're going to do what they're going to do, and they don't really care whether you like it or what you have to say about it. And obviously, if that's the case, you don't want to waste your energy and time giving someone feedback that's not going to be appreciated and may actually harm your relationship with them, particularly on a personal level. Yes, absolutely. And also, not only do you need to know your audience, but you need to know yourself and your ability. Are you going to actually give them feedback? Or are you just going to lecture them about something? Yeah, yeah those, that's, that's not going to help. Two very no, absolutely not. Those are two very different. I see those as very separate entities. Yes, and only one of them is constructive. <laughs> yeah. As we said earlier, some people are just flat out bad at it, and you have to be willing to say, you know, I really need to talk to you about that thing you do, but I suck at explaining it. It's probably better to to not, you know, write it down and get a separate third-party trusted friend to help you figure out how to say it accurately, what you've got to say, because maybe you do suck at it, and you don't want to say it bad and then make it everything worse. And you have to be willing to, to look at things and do that sort of stuff. If you're not willing to do that for yourself, you really can't bring somebody to the table and do it to them. Yep. And generally, if you suck at it, but you care enough about the person and you think they would improve, that, that they would want to hear what you have to say, just come out and say to begin, you know, I have some things I want to talk to you about, but I kind of suck at this or I'm not sure how to do this. So could you bear with me and help me out here? And that kind of gives you, I don't want to say carte blanche, but it, it sort of gives you a disclaimer that says, okay, I might come out and you know open mouth and insert body parts here, but I have a great intention and you know I'm going to do the best I can and maybe you can help coach me say it in a way that, that you can hear what I'm saying. And then ask, the, and if you're that, if you're one of those folks or if you're not sure that they heard you correctly, ask them to, to you know, what did you hear me say or uh, what do you think the message is or, you know, uh, do you think you understand what I'm trying to get at and have the person explain it back to you. And if they don't, if they didn't hear you correctly, try to say it in a different way and then ask them if they heard that correctly. Cause you know, just cause you say, e even if you say it correctly, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be received correctly. Cause that, then we're going back to the, you know, what are the limits of the, of the receiver in terms of, his or her own auditory processing, whether they are cluster B personality disorder, <laughs> you know, whether they're delusional. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors involved here. Exactly. So um, we are at the conclusions, closing remarks, and final suggestions, and you know we're running a bit of a short show tonight, but that's fine as long as everybody has an accurate understanding of the points we're making here. 
Um, yeah, it's not like we haven't but, run over before, right? <laughs> yeah, so it all kind of evens out, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in conclusion, our society in general and our corporate culture in specific both do a poor job of preparing most people, be they on the giving or receiving end of feedback, to participate in the feedback process from a stance of sincerely wanting to help facilitate improvement without the feedback being received as an attack. I mean, I'm fairly certain almost all of us know somebody who just doesn't want to hear when something's not going right. You know, they just shut you down or they maybe they got a little narcissistic problem and they can't do any wrong. And then, you know, obviously the problem is you if you have a problem. Um, So this is going to happen and you're going to have to tailor this. It's a very subjective process, but it's a very important one to understand because so many of us want to get this information and at the same time we don't want to give it and it's understandable because sometimes we're bad at it sometimes it's not received and sometimes nothing comes of it and so we kind of feel like we're either wasting our time or we're going to get yelled at for criticizing somebody and all of these things are understandable so all we can do is contribute to being transparent Contribute to being authentic about the process and do the best you can. And honestly, you know, if you're in relationship with people who are just going to poison this, uh, I know, you know, sometimes they're family and you can't really choose and sometimes they're coworkers or supervisors. I, I get that. But as much as you can, you may need to help contribute to a clean process or get away from them. You know, yeah. if, if these things are in your power, just walk away because you can't control them past a certain point. There's only so much you can do. So we hope that our listeners are now able to understand the constructive use of feedback and both give it and receive it in the spirit of helping. We encourage everyone to share this insight with others in your family, social circles, and workplaces as appropriate to nurture the cultural standard of feedback becoming a a positive process. And I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis, and see if there's anything else you want to add towards that. No, I think I'm good. Thank you. Okay. So on behalf of myself, Dr. Mathis, and NDB Media, we want to thank our listeners this evening and give our appreciation to those of you who might be joining us later via podcast, iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify, etc., And we hope to see you guys in two weeks with a new topic for discussion on Wednesday, October 12th, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on blogtalkradio.com. We'd also like to give a shout-out to other NDB Media shows that are coming up in the next couple of weeks. Um, Also, to let you guys know, uh, we do have another show coming up in two weeks, and then bear with us. After that, we may have a bit of growing pains as Dr. Mathis is getting down to that time when he will be moving across the country And we don't have firm dates about how all that's going to go together or when his setup in the new place will be finished. So we will talk to you in two weeks, and then things are going to get a little wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Don't yell at me if I said it wrong, because I'm not actually a Doctor Who fan. I like Doctor Who, but I don't get the jokes. So (laughs) anyhow, I want to give you guys a heads up, and then here are some of our cohorts and uh, coworkers and what they're up to. Uh, tomorrow night, Travelage Radio, uh, the 29th, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 
Once called the Queen City of the Gulf, Galveston, Texas has six historic districts and one of the nation's largest collections of 19th century buildings, with more than 60 on the National Register of Historic Places. A port city that was once the capital of the Republic of Texas, Galveston has gone from hurricane victim to tourist mecca with a benign climate. Uh, I wonder how that's doing with Ian right now. <laughs> I know they're not in the middle of it because they're not Florida, but still, I, I know that we're getting pushback, so I'm sure they are too. Uh, anyway, uh, they also have multiple attractions. Uh, hear all about the area located on an island off the southwest coast of Texas when Mary Beth Bassett, Senior Public Relations Manager of Visit Galveston, visits Travelitz Radio and talks to Dan Schlossberg and Mary Ellen Nugent Lane. Next up, Sports Talk with the Guys, Saturday morning extravaganza at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. The Monday morning quarterbacks are live on Saturday morning on StreamYard. Check the NDB Media page on Facebook for links and times. The Walking Dead online viewing party, Sunday night, the 2nd of October. That'll be me, 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We are doing the episode Lockdown, the season 11 final third, last eight episodes, quote, season, mid-season premiere. The official AMC synopsis is Daryl and Negan rush to the Commonwealth to stop Hornsby from going after their families. Pamela deals with protesters demanding justice for Sebastian's crimes. Mercer needs Rosita to help fight a swarm. Next up, Monday Night in America with Roger Noriega, 10 p.m. Roger Dean Noriega brings you his unique take on politics, current events, entertainment, sci-fi, and history, currently also hosted on StreamYard. Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, Phantom Access Week in Review. Join the curious critics Jamie, Karen, and AJ as they dig into another night of television. Recent shows covered included Resident Alien, House of the Dragon, She-Hulk, Quantum Leap Reboot, Rings of Power, and whatever else sounds intriguing. Next up, next Saturday, Ever New. Saturday the 8th, 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time, 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time with Chris Smith, host, Hannah McCrane, co-host, and their guests. Ever New is about living out loud, forging lasting connections, and visiting with effervescent thinkers and dreamers. It's an uplifting hour that promises to leave everyone feeling better. So who's up for some fun? A new, ever-new podcast will air every other Saturday at the same Twitch NDB Media link on the public NDB Media page. Please look for The Rock and Roll Shrink on Facebook, on Twitter, on iTunes, on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and on the web at www.rockandrollshrink.com. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us, and rock on. See you next time. Thank you.